Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. This week on the show I chat with Benedict Cumberbatch and Kirsten Dunst about their new movie The Brooding and Brilliant, The Power of the Dog. Star of Walking Dead and The Punisher, John Bernthal chats to me about his role as tennis coach to the Williams sisters in the new Will Smith movie King Richard. The Ghostbusters are back and so is Mark Ryle to review it, plus director Michael McCormick on his documentary Breaking Out about cult musician Fergus O'Farrell. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app. Powered by Go Loud. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. I'm talking fast there because there's, as you heard from that intro, a lot to fit into the show this week. So I have to dispense with my normal, here's what I was watching on the television this week, just to get down to it. But before I get down to it, I just want to quickly mention our wonderful competition last week of the 40 film DVD set of Clint Eastwood movies was won by Tanya Furlong in Kilkenny. There was a huge amount of entries to it. Poor Anne-Marie Kane was days going through them. So congratulations, Tanya. That is winging its way to you as we speak. At least I hope it is. It'll get there. Don't worry. Now, let's do this. What little lady made these? I did, sir. Open up the gate, let him out. You sure he's not ready? Go on, let him out. It's just a man, Peter. Only another man. (laughs) A man was made by patience and the odds against him. For what kind of man would I be if I did not help my mother? Yeah, that's a clip from The Power of the Dog. That's in cinemas this Friday, the 19th of November, and it's going to be on Netflix because it's a Netflix movie from the 1st of December. It is getting a cinema release, which makes you think there might be Oscar talk, and rightly so. It's set in 1920s Montana. It's based on a book, a novel of the same name and it's directed by Jane Campion and it stars Benedict Cumberbatch who plays Phil Burbank and his brother George who's played by Jesse Plemons as I say they're two brothers on a ranch and Phil is a dark kind of fellow he's very clever he's very good at ranching but he's a dark kind of guy and he's a weird relationship with his brother. He calls him Fatso. So Phil's outraged when George marries a widow from the town and the widow's rose played brilliantly by Kirsten Dunst. And she's a former cinema piano player and she's now running a cafe and she has a sensitive son, Peter, played by Cody Smith-McPhee, who waits tables and he makes flower designs and most people think he's very effeminate. And Phil is, as I say, outraged when his brother brings this new woman home to the house, along with her son. This is a brooding psychodrama. Benedict Cumberbatch is immense in it. So is Kirsten Dunst. So is Jesse Plemons. It is a really good movie. There's a great use of music and whistling and piano playing in it. I really enjoyed it. It's dark, but it is rightly being talked about for Oscars. Now, Benedict Cumberbatch plays the aforementioned Phil in this, and I got to talk to him about the role. I had the pleasure of talking to you back in February for the Maritanium, and I ended the interview by complimenting you on your diverse range of roles. And a friend of mine was listening to it, and he said I was being very sycophantic and blowing smoke up your ass. So I had to change my first question for this morning because I remembered that. So en route to that, I was going to say I thought you were brilliant in this, but I'm aware of being sycophantic. So let me just ask you. One thing my characters taught me is not to give up what other people think of you so just hold true to your opinion especially if it's a flattering one i'm very grateful sage Um, advice what i was going to say was 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 a western always on your bucket list a western was this isn't really a western though by any means in fact i mean it's it's very much outside of that era it's 1925 for a start yeah i I suppose yeah it dresses itself up as one because we're talking about you know a ranch in montana and there's dust and cattle and the isolation against a large landscape courtesy of New Zealand as, a, as an actual mm-hmm. landscape doubling for Montana, which is very, very different to what it was then. 
Um, but yeah, I, you know, the idea of, of a Western and riding horses and, and doing some of the things I do in the film, yeah, definitely part of the bucket list. Yeah. The, your character is fascinating. And despite sycophancy or not, you play him brilliantly. And what was fascinating is his motivations are so curious and, and you, they're not revealed. And you could, without giving a spoiler, you could even argue that they're not even revealed by the end of the movie. You know, yeah. he, he was such a complicated fellow. H- how did you view him? Um, with a great deal of empathy. I mean, you have to okay. sort of, I did a lot of psyche work. I did some uh, dream, uh, Jungian dream analysis to get there, um, which wow. is, a, is an incredible thing to do with a wonderful woman called Kim Gillingham to try and, you know, dig deep into the subconscious and try to um, really marinate for a long time in this person's worldview and, and what what my subconscious could do to, to trigger that or, or help me with that was, was very, very interesting. But, you know... It, He's someone who, um, it's partly a testament to how brilliant Jane is as a, as a narrative um, mm. storyteller, you know, both as a writer and a director, that she could display his more abhorrent and angry nature to begin with in the film and then slowly, slowly, layer after layer, reveal who he really is and still yeah. hold you without yeah. being completely repulsed by his behavior in the process um, to a point where you act absolutely understand who he is as he starts to open up and you know truths about him are revealed um again i feel like i'm speaking in code because obviously out of respect yeah, for the work sure I see too much away but um i uh i relish that i mean you know the, the, the great gift i guess of any kind of screen acting is this this idea of holding a secret within or a subtext within yeah. a given moment in a story so a lot of what I saw as his worst behavior, I, I sort of felt were, you know, it's like a damaged child. It's just, it's outbursts of violent, um, reactive, defensive, angry behavior. And toxic masculinity is sort of the kind of um, bracket headline for for that, that description, I guess. Um, and understanding what the fuel of that behind all that behavior what was motivating, it was, it's, it's one of the rare moments where you have an incredible blueprint to work with, both in Jane's script and also Thomas Savage's novel, which obviously has the ability to dance around in, in, in terms of time and give you mm-hmm. huge backstories and insights into um, the present tense drama. Um, and I really fell for him. And I think Jane and I both, did. in fact, the whole career, everyone did it, you know, this idea of trying to reveal... Uh, this tortured soul and what was at the root of um, who he was. Really rich, rich canvas to play with and uh, a dreamy kind of um, list of ingredients and, and motivations to work with as an actor. Really it, wonderful. Yeah, the, the you mentioned Jungian dream analysis, which is fascinating. We could go down a whole rabbit hole there, but like sure. in terms of the other stuff you did, you learned the banjo. Apparently yeah. you were waltzing with Jesse Plemons. So, you know, I don't want to say it was Marlon Brando stuff, but it was like there was a huge amount of preparation went into this. Yeah, which began almost a year before. And I, I, I went to Montana and I, I rode horses on ranches. I steered cattle. Um, I wow. was at um, two branding events. So I, I, you know, got used to what that was about, branding cattle, inoculating them and castrating them. And that's that's pretty hands-on stuff. Yeah. Uh, banjo playing, whittling, uh, what else? Whistling, um, rolling a cigarette. <laughs> and those are two things that- <laughs> For a long, long while, bizarrely, I managed to fluke a horseshoe out of my first go at ironmongery. I mean, in the book, he is a polymath. He's a, a true yeah. master. At he does. He has great uh, dexterity and capability with his hands, um, which is one of the many things I actually admire about him, that and his kind of engagement with the world outside of the human intellect, although he is a mm. very bright um, classical scholar. Um, he's someone who sees himself as inured and deeply connected to nature. And that, that, that thrilled me. I, 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 I love that part of my life when I get it. That's my sanctuary yeah. as for a lot of people, um, you know, to just ground things, gain perspective, be humbled and, and, and start learning again and really feeling what it's like to be in a human body on the planet. Yeah. And uh, that interaction with horses and dogs and, and cattle was just in that landscape was something for nothing uh, within context of where we filmed it in New Zealand, but something I definitely 
relished playing of him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there were lots of other skills that some didn't make the movie. I, I mean, even went to a taxidermist, which was... <laughs> I don't recommend that if you haven't had your breakfast. Maybe wow. Learning how to worse. stuff it things. Worst. It, depends, it depends how your digestion works, but it's, yeah, it's not for the weak stomachs. Um, it's it's pretty full on stuff. Uh, and the, the smell of it. Yeah, I can imagine. The whistling, because the whistle, that, and again, I don't want to give spoilers, but whistling is a huge part of the movie, and it's, it's just yeah. a great piece in the movie, the way that yeah. whistle works. Did you yeah. have to practice whistling? I mean, I have a three-year-old who can't whistle, you know, so. Well, that, that I did, no, the, the, the sort of normal kind of. Yeah. That, I, I'm all right with that. Not, not, I can't do it like I'm doing it on a stage for a talent contest, but um, the one that was really, <laughs> I think I don't know, is the kind of, that kind of whistle. I took, that took ages to learn. I'm still not very good at it, but to whistle without using your fingers or, or just, you know, to alert people. Yeah. Or, over a large distance with the wind blowing that something was up or you know to give an instruction or an awareness to animals um that kind of whistling is really really hard uh, it was that and the one hand rolling of uh of um <laughs> cigarettes while on a horse and then lighting it that was those are the trickier prop moments <laughs> or skill acquisition moments but the right the writing i thankfully i'd done a lot of that before not just in montana but in another couple of films that i trained mm. quite a lot for and um I had the most amazing horse and the most amazing horse wranglers. So uh, I learned a lot to the point that I rode afterwards on other horses that were nowhere near as responsive. And I became, I could feel myself more in command of the situation because of my experience uh, with this incredible horse. Great horses teach riders. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of mm. the truth. Very much so with Cricket. I would name drop him. There he is. Oh, wow. Cricket was the horse. Cricket was the name of the horse. Yeah. Okay. Lovely. Cricket. Quite sprightly, you know, just a really good um, workhorse. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant horse. Yeah. Fast, responsive and beautiful. And yeah. Great. Well, listen, our time is up. Long may you whistle. You are fantastic in it. And <laughs> the begrudgery who say I'm sycophantic. It's yes, a great well, you said the effort. I couldn't say it. Just so, in case, yeah. But yeah, yeah. They'll edit it anyway. Listen, thanks a million. <laughs> <Benedict. laughs> Lovely to meet Cheers. Thanks. 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 Bye bye. Yes, Benedict Cumberbatch there, listening to me swear at him. And my thanks to him for talking to me about the wonderful new movie, The Power of the Dog. He really is perhaps the most versatile actor working today. I saw him in a movie earlier this week called The Electric Life of Louis Wayne, which will be released next year. And again, it's it's a completely different character. He is incredibly versatile. Now, in the movie, Kirsten Dunst plays Rose, this woman who comes in to Phil's house when he when she marries George, Phil's brother, and they really don't get on and she becomes quietly terrified of him and she's trying to be a good wife and to play the piano for house guests who come over and stuff like that, but she is petrified and traumatized by Benedict Cumberbatch's character. Kirsten Dunst is an actress who's been working for years in everything from Interview with a Vampire to the Spider-Man movies to Melancholia. She is a tremendous actress and she is brilliant in this. And I got to talk to her. I was just talking to your co-star, Benedict, who I know is a very nice man and you seem like a very nice lady. But I understand that it was kind of method in a way and that you didn't really talk to each other on set to keep that going it must be an odd experience or are you just so in the moment you roll with all that stuff I, I it was just beneficial to both of our roles not to engage with with each other and listen it, it to me I'm an actress I could have you know I did say hi to him sometimes in the morning but like <laughs> it, it but what's interesting about it too is I didn't really have that many scenes with him yeah at a distance so it's kind of like I had to create my own monsters and things and mm -hmm. and my own feelings of of feeling bad about myself or you know those those psychological you know things he's doing to me it's very subtle so I kind of had to work on my own you know painful experiences and insecurities in my life to um feel you know less than and and um yeah feel terrible about myself <laughs> well it's funny you say that because now that you mentioned you don't have that many scenes together yet his character is in a certain sense the monster in your life but yet you see so very little of him and there's there's this haunting whistle uh that we know he's on set or so do you how did you see 
your character. I, I mean, do you think she comes to that place with all her own baggage or is he really the cause of all that? Or is it a combination of the two of them? I think when you, listen, when you're coming to that big ranch and you're totally out of your element, um, you know, she's so used to being, she's a hard worker. You know, mm. she cooks, she cleans, she keeps an inn. Mm. She's, she, um, she has like a very, she has a, you know, a, a really big function and then everything's kind of taken away from her. And I think that to walk into the house and have him immediately shut her down is just, mm. how do you live in, how do you live in a house like that? Where, where you're living with someone who doesn't want you there yeah. immediately. And for someone like Rose, she's very polite and she wants to like make every please everyone. Mm. So I don't think in that, in that during that time, she wanted to disrupt uh, her husband's relationship with his brother. And she just wanted to make nice. And she thought, okay, if I make nice for long enough, mm. you know, it'll be okay. And that's not the case. No, it certainly isn't. Uh, Jane Campion is a fantastic director, and we all know that. And the movie, the way it's shot, the way it feels, it's just, it's clearly of her making, you know? And I gather, you know, she had Benedict waltzing with Jesse. He was off learning the banjo and stuff like that. Did you feel like it was a, a unique kind of set, the way she had set it up for you actors? Um, it's, it was very uh, intimate for sure. I felt like there, there was, you know, I felt safe in, in the Jane environment. You know, mm. I, I, um, we did rehearse for a pretty extensive period of time, which was, was helpful because just to, to do, you know, improvised dinner scenes or what that would have been like, mm -hmm. things that aren't shown necessarily on film gave us all a good you know, backstory for what was happening to fill in all those other places um, that yeah. weren't shown in the film. Uh, you're married to Jesse Plemons in real life and you can't help but ask, it must be odd. I'm sure it's wonderful, but it, it must be strange to play the wife of your real life husband in a movie. I can't it's, help but think it's odd. Well, we work together on Fargo and- Well, that's, yeah, but, just, but yeah. We fell in love as like, I you know, creatively, I just loved working with him. He's my favorite actor, you know, I've worked with. Um, and then we got together a year after Fargo. And for, for us, it was such a gift to be able to work together, you know? Mm -hmm. And the only part that was kind of funny about it is that we had to be so formal with each other. And meanwhile, we have a child, yeah. you know what I mean? So that, yeah, that was yeah. the only thing that, that was kind of like just we're actors and I don't know for, for me we we always want to work together every you know four or five years or something we'll, we'll always try and find a project together okay did you the the piano and your piano playing not to give any spoilers is a very important part of the movie did you have to learn the piano or did you already know it or no no I had to learn the piano and because I could tell you were I can actually play the piano and I could tell that you weren't faking I could tell you were oh, no I, play, playing I played the piano I learned how to yeah, play and yeah. I it's funny because I actually learned that piece pretty well to then not play it well. Play well and yeah. then I also learned another piece that she cut out of the movie, which I was like, because oh. <laughs> it's so hard to learn the piano. It's so hard to learn an instrument when you're older, you know, it's not something. Yeah. I remember when I first, because you learn the one side of the hand, then you have to learn the other side of the hand and then putting it together is a whole other part of your brain. And when it first happened, I literally, I think I had tears in my eyes and I was just <laughs> like, thank you, God, because it's, it's not, an easy thing to learn. I just would practice every night. My friends were so tired of me playing it over and over and over and over and over again. But Finally, then, you know, you've had a long career because you started this very young and you're still of miles to go yet. You're only, I guess, a third of the way through it or whatever. And you were in those famous Spider-Man movies and all that. But lately in the last few years, and not, not to cast a shadow on what you did earlier on, but you're doing incredibly meaty, meaty roles and, and this is another example of it and, and sometimes fascinating characters I'm thinking of your role in Melancholia from a few years ago are you on the lookout for kind of different things than you would have been say 10 or 15 years ago so funny I I'm 39 now so I made Melancholia when I was like 28 I think like really like gosh I feel when old <laughs> maybe I was 30 I made it a pretty long time I mean wow 
Well, see, but I always felt like, listen, I started my career with the interview of the vampire. So I can't say that I suddenly it just started. And then Virgin Suicides and <laughs> I did Spider-Man, but then I was doing Marie Antoinette on my off time. So I always wanted to balance independent film with, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, other film blockbuster or whatever that I was doing. I was always drawn to like a, a smaller film set and a, and a smaller way of a production, production wise. I, I liked the intimacy of it. Um, but yeah, I think as you get older, you're, you, you should get better at your job, right? I, mean, I, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's like with any job you, you study it more, you take a different approaches and you, um, yeah, you grow up and you get hopefully better at it. Well, you're, you're growing up very well and, and it's a pleasure to meet you And the paradox is a fantastic movie. So thanks for Thank talking you. to me. Thanks for having me. Kirsten Dunst there talking to me about her career and also her role in The Great, The Power of the Dog, which is now in cinemas and will be on Netflix on the 1st of December. A great movie. Up next, American actor John Berthold on his new role as the tennis coach in the new Will Smith movie, King Richard. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time. This is News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now, another new release this week is King Richard, which you may have heard about, where Will Smith plays the aforementioned Richard as the dad, the real-life dad, to the sisters Williams. That's Venus and Serena Williams, the amazing tennis players. Now, he plays their unconventional dad who had a plan to make the Williams sisters the greatest tennis product the world had ever seen. They grew up on the, well, according to this movie, the mean streets of Compton, California, and of course were catapulted to a global stage as legendary tennis icons, uh, and there's no disputing that. It's a moving movie about the power of family, perseverance, and unwavering belief, and it, not to give you a spoiler, it focuses on their early days and does so very well. One of the instrumental people that the Williams sisters came across was tennis coach Rick Macy. And in this movie, he's played by the well-known American actor John Bernthal. Now, John Bernthal has been the Punisher in The Punisher. He was in The Walking Dead. Most recently, I saw him in The Many Saints of Newark. He's a very accomplished actor. He's also a supporter of pit bulls and the fair treatment of pit bulls, the dog. Fascinating guy who I spoke to earlier this week about the movie King Richard. So, John, I gather that you were really keen to get this part. Uh, you even, mm. even though you're a pretty svelte fellow as it is, you lost some weight and you were mm-hmm. itching to do this. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, man. I, I, you, you know, I, I, I think you know, oftentimes with 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 um, these kinds of things, you know, you read a script and you, you you kind of fall in love and you decide you want to go after it and you want to fight for it. Um, and then sort of every step of the way, you know, once you get involved in the process, you know, the process either goes in one of two ways. It either gets better and better <laughs> or it goes the other way. And, you know, when I met Ray, um, uh, Ray Green, the director, I immediately connected to him. And, and I think it was the, the, the piece was important to him for the same reasons why it was really important to me. You know, this just real meditation on on, on fatherhood and, and, and family and um, you know, exploring the sort of full spectrum of, you know, toxicity to sort of sublime beauty that can be in youth sports and what it can do, you, you know, for a child. And so, I, you know, after meeting him, I just I, I wanted in so bad. But, yeah, you know, um, coming off of Punisher, it was really important to him to, you know, for me to really change my body and understand the game of tennis and to really train. And, and I love that. That's sort of my favorite thing about the 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 profession overall is to kind of dive in and 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 get the tools of the trade so you know changing my body and losing it was about 30 pounds that i that i lost it was that that was uh you know i i kind of love that part that's sort of the easy easy (laughs) part of this this job you know yeah you know sports business and 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 looking after young kids i know a bit more about the music business but they Mm -hmm. they have parallels in that often you know, these great talents, they can get somewhat mistreated and abused sure. and they sign contracts and sign half their life away. It seems mostly because of Richard, but also because of your character as well, that the the Serena sisters, or sorry, the William sisters were slightly on the sides of the angels and that they had two important people looking out for them, most notably their dad, but your character, their coach as well. Like you've spoken to him, I gather, for the part. Did he seem like he was a good guy? You get that impression. That's certainly the way you play him. 
Yeah, and I think their mother as well. You, you yeah, know, and of I think the family yeah. overall. I mean, I think it was just sort of this overall decision to, you know, put them first and put 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 their development as as kind, uh, contributing, um, thoughtful, and good people and well rounded people, and concentrating on education and not letting the pressure and the again the sort of. Um, sort of toxic kind of uh, have to win at all costs attitude, uh, you know, into their um, upbringing. Um, but yeah, I, I think the, you know, the, when I talked to Serena for the first time, the, the, the thing she said to me was that her time at Rick Macy's was one of the funnest times of her life. And, okay. you know, you often learn so much about a character, not so much about if it's a real person, about what they say about themselves, but what other people say about them. Um, it's, yeah. it's something I always do in any script I read. I, I, I write down everything that other characters say about my character, because that's often where you, you, you find the truth. And, and, you know, the one thing everyone uniformly said about Rick Macy is just so much fun. And he made everything mm -hmm. a game. And he wanted the kids, he wants his players and his students to love the game and, and to celebrate the game. And that was a really beautiful thing for me to dive into. I'm an athlete myself. You know, I played sports mm -hmm. all through high school and college. And and, um, and I should tell listeners you were a professional hockey player as well, right? Uh, no, baseball. Baseball. Baseball, yeah, sorry. Yeah, definitely yeah. not sorry. hockey. I can't even Sorry, I'm it. Irish. We mix these things up. It's all good, here. man. It's all good. <laughs> but, you know, boxing and football, you know, I, I really, and I, I come from sort of a family of athletes. And, and um, you know, I, 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 I'm I'm so I, I have so much gratitude and 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 love and um, you know reverence for the, the these these um, you know these coaches that I had growing up you know that yeah. made the game fun and and had this pure unfaltering love for the game and and I think Rick is very much that kind of guy and um, I think that's why ultimately you know Richard um, and the family decide to sort of put their trust in him. Yeah. I, something that you might like to hear is I went to see this last night. I usually go to critic screenings, but for various reasons I won't bore you with, I couldn't. So I went to one with kind of a general audience last night and there was a lot of young people in it. And something happened that hasn't happened in a cinema screen and I go all the time. They applauded wildly at the end mm. of the movie. Mm. Rapturous applause. And that doesn't happen that often. So mm. I, I presume you're pleased to hear that. Really pleased, man. Look, I, I, you know, I, I, I love this film and um, I, I loved the process. I really love everybody who made it. I love, I love why we made it and I love how we made it. Um, it was, uh, you know, these two young women um, who play these parts, you know, Sinai and Demi, you know, I, I really care about them and, and mm. I love their families, you know, and, I, and, and, and really all of the young, young women who played the Williams sisters, you know, it was really this sort of beautiful thing to behold. And, you know, Will's work in the movie is just so magnificent and, and mm -hmm. um, he's such a generous person uh, an actor and, and um, you know, Ray Green. Uh, the director, he and I have become enormously close. We just went and did a, a six-part miniseries for HBO together. Um, it was just a really, th this movie was just made right. It was, yeah. um, it was there, there was real joy on set. And, um, you, you know, I, I, look, I think, I think making a film is, is, is perhaps the most collaborative art form. It, it really requires everybody feeling free to, to do their best work and, um, to uh, sort of, uh, I, I think on certain sets, you sort of strip away all the, you know, hierarchy, which I think really gets in the way. And it just becomes this free flow of ideas and everybody feels uh, emboldened and, and uh, unleashed. And um, it was truly like that, I think more so than any other film I've been on. And um, okay. so I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. Good. Listen, I know a lot of people talk to you about cult shows you've been in like you mentioned Punisher and also uh The Walking Dead the last movie I saw you in was The Many Saints of Newark and mm -hmm. I am one of those Sopranos devotees and you were brilliant in it playing you know Tony's dad albeit at uh, 30 years before The Sopranos TV show was that a thrill for you to be in that kind of I know it's not a franchise but you know what I mean mm -hmm. The Sopranos world <laughs> yeah sure man I mean I I, I mean look the, you know when I was just coming up as an actor it was sort of at the apex of Sopranos height mm. you know and 
I begged my my agents at the time to just get me an audition to 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 be a background actor on The Sopranos. I just wanted to be a part <laughs> of it so bad. And you know, um, you know, Jim Gandolfini, um, you know, is among my my favorite actors and artists of all time. Um, I, I was blown away by him by by the first time I saw him in True Romance, um, and I was an enormous Sopranos fan. But for me, you know, that experience really centered around Mike Gandolfini. Uh, I met him before the movie started, and um, I was uh, really taken with him, blown away by by his courage and his wisdom, why he wanted to do the film, um, his approach to, you know, taking this part as sort of getting to know his father better, you know, since uh-huh. he's passed. And yeah. um, I love this young man and really believe in him, and, and, and I felt like my, my, my role in the film was to sort of stand by Mike's side and, 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 and behind him and sometimes in front of him and, and um, just really be there for him. And um, I made a truly great friend on that film, and um, I was glad uh, I was glad to sort of uh, be a part of keeping Tony Soprano in the Gandolfini family. Yeah, you certainly did. And then finally, John, can I just ask you, I was really surprised and I suppose heartened to read that you were a big proponent of the welfare of pit bulls, <laughs> as in the dogs. I know this is a strange way to end a movie it's interview, funny. but, you know, I suppose I maybe I'm one of those people who thought, God, that's really incongruous. Why is this Hollywood star worried about pit bulls? So maybe in 30 seconds, could you tell our listeners why you are worried about pit bulls? Oh, look, man, I don't know that I can do it in 30 seconds, but look, I, I, I've grown <laughs> up with them. I, I, I love the breed. I think they're sort of the most misunderstood and 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 um, um, sort of mistreated breed. You know, there's all okay. kinds of legislation across the world kind of outlawing them. And mm-hmm. what happens, especially in the states, is you know certain cities will come in and say they're no longer it's no longer legal to to, to own them, and so yeah. people are giving up their family pets. And you know, to me, there's um, you know, it could be a Chihuahua, Cocker Spaniel, a, a Rottweiler, a Pitbull. You know, it's all about, you know, the individual dog. It's not about a breed. And, you know, breed-specific legislation is just insane to me. Um, so, look, I think they're really misunderstood. And um, I see a lot of that kind of in myself and how I grew up. And, um, <laughs> you know, I just, uh, I, 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 lo- I love the dogs. I always have a bunch of them. And, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, always, I'll always be a proponent of them. Oh, well, that's a great answer in about 45 seconds. I really appreciate your time this morning, John. Thanks a lot for talking to me. I appreciate you, man. Thank you very much. John Burnthal there talking to me about Pitbulls, starring in The Many Saints of Newark, and of course, the new movie King Richard, where he plays tennis coach Rick Macy. Uh, King Richard, starring Will Smith, is in cinemas from this weekend, the 19th of December. Still more new releases to come, and up next, Mark Ryle on the return of the Ghostbusters. Hi. Hello again. You brought them home. It's a service I provide. All right. Well, I'm, I'm also an escort. Mm, that came out okay. wrong. Yeah. Look, the truth is, is I've always kind of wondered what lurked inside this haunt box. Right, well, the only thing lurking inside here is my slowly dying soul. Is that what that smell is? Well, it's not dinner, so. (laughs) Um, Would you? Sure. Like? Yeah. I don't have any food. It's fine. Tour. Great. Great. Now, that was a clip from Ghostbusters Afterlife. Yes, another big release of the week. A lot of new releases this week. And I was going to make the joke about, you know, who are you going to call? Mark Ryle. But I won't. <laughs> I'm above that. Mark, I'd like you to review Ghostbusters Afterlife, please. I would I would call a, a qualified tradesperson if it was me, depending <laughs> on what the problem was. Yeah. Hi. Hi hello. Dan. Hello. Listen, uh, again, it doesn't happen often. We were, we were at the cinema together and I'm going sure. to see this. I'm going to put the... You know, I'm going to uh, cart before the horse end at the beginning. But I think we came out of this, it's fair to say, both pleasantly su- surprised because we had pretty low expectations going in. And we, we both did. looked at each other afterwards, kind of with a warm feeling. Yeah, it is. It's 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 pretty great. I think it's it's probably important to say that from, yeah. from the get go. Yeah. And surprisingly so. I'm not yeah. sure if. I like. I certainly wasn't waiting around for another Ghostbusters movie. <laughs> Just killing time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen. Um, tell yeah. people what's going on in this one. 
Right. So uh, Jason Reitman has taken over the director's chair from his his father, Ivan Reitman, who directed the 1984 um, movie. And he has also uh, co-written the script. So he's keeping it in the family. Um, Ghostbusters Afterlife is set in the present day and it begins with Egon Spengler at an isolated farmhouse in the middle of nowhere near the town of Somerville. Now, Egon is there for a reason and that reason is chasing him and things end badly. Then it moves into the city with Carrie Coon, who plays Egon's estranged daughter, who is very much of the opinion that uh, her father walked out on her when she was a child and abandoned her. And she also has serious money problems and then she gets kicked out of her apartment so she takes off with her two teenage kids to the town uh, that Egon was previously in and to the rundown farmhouse that she has just inherited from her father but it's not the answer to her problems and she finds that she's just inherited a load of debt and also the town of Somerville um, was built near a mine um, a, a mineral mine that contains a lot of bad mojo so I think I'll probably leave the story there. Well, yeah, but you also want to mention, though, if, if, if you don't mind me saying, I mean, it's your party, but that her two children are kind of protagonists in the movie. Her young daughter, Phoebe, uh, played by McKenna Grace, and then also the son... Uh, Trevor. Yeah. Fionn, Finn Wolfhard. Finn. Finn. Finn, Finn not Fionn. Finn, no. Finn Wolfhard, uh, her older brother. They're kind of taking up the gauntlet of being the ghost hunters, busters, really, right? Kind of in a yeah, I suppose so in a roundabout way. Yeah, it's it's one of those movies that it's difficult to talk about, but we will we will endeavor to try. <laughs> well, we've got six minutes, so I you know. know. I mean, yeah, but it it is it's it's really good. I think its heart is is in its in the right place, and I would describe it as a kids' movie for the over forties. Yes, that's a very good way of putting it. I was talking to someone on the hard shoulder, Kieran Cuddy, earlier in the week, and I said I had the same feeling that when I went to see The Force Awakens, and I really enjoyed it so much because they were putting in, you know, broken X-Wings and little bits of the Death Star, and it was enough to please the 40-year-old me who was the 10-year-old fan, but yet they moved the story on, and I think the analogy holds for this. There's a new story here, but there's enough Easter eggs or whatever for fans of the original movie. There is, yeah, but I think, like, it, I, I, just, I, I suppose it does eventually become a, a real nostalgia fest. But I think, in the main, it does try and be its own thing. The one thing that I was really, really happy about was the music. I think when most people think of Ghostbusters, they think of that Ray Parker Jr. theme song. Yeah. But for me, that was just marketing. I think Elmer Bernstein's musical score is a huge part of the appeal of the original. So I was really, really pleased with the the, the choice of using uh, Bernstein's music so extensively throughout this one. I think mm. it really helps to ground it in that world and, you know, to link it into the same space, if you like, as the original. Yeah. Now, what did you want to say to me about the sequels and stuff? Oh, God. Yeah, I mean, I'll try and go through. I mean, it was, it, it, it's was it been on a very serpentine path. Um, mm -hmm. The original was obviously a classic. It's, it's yeah. capturing lightning in a bottle, uh, right cast, right script, right time. There was a sequel in 1989, and it it's not really looked upon fondly. But the, after that, then, Dan Aykroyd spent the guts of 25 years schlepping around with various scripts for Ghostbusters 3. Um, the intention, I think, was to have Harold Ramis directing and Ivan Wright and producing and um, bill murray of course was always the whole date and i think at one point he agreed to do the, the third one if peter venkman was killed off in the first two minutes um, <laughs> a very <laughs> bill murray of him yeah and i think he spent <laughs> that was his default position for 25 years then of course we have to mention the, the paul feig movie from 2016 yes the reboot um yeah that and at that same time when that was a production there was also another ghostbusters movie with channing tatum attached to it but anyway as it turned out Feig's movie turned out to be a bit of a disaster wasn't well received no um, particularly with the the basement dwelling neckbeard internet crowd they were not happy with the uh, their boys club was replaced by an all-female cast but that like the fact yeah, the I, matter, can I just interject there and say yeah that, that was horrible the way that all played out but I didn't think it was a great movie no I mean the fact of the matter is that it was it was just a bad movie it wasn't yeah. funny and it was it was odd and it just it had none of the heart or the charm of the original so We've ended up where we're at. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but you're saying it's, you know, well, not that the destination has been worth all the traveling, but this is a worthy taker up of the gauntlet 30 plus years later. 
I, I really do, and it's surprising. Um, I mm. kind of let's. I don't really want to give it away, but I'm going to refer to them as heritage characters. Yes. Um, there is a lot of fan service in this, and there probably might be too much for for some viewers. But I think, in my opinion, I think it's been handled very, very well. And yeah. those heritage characters, if you like, they're they're well written. And they are used sparingly, but the emotional impact for me was enormous. And mm. I'm I'm not ashamed to say I might have had something in my eye. Wow, really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think I've I've ever uh, encountered that before. So that's kind of high praise from you. Can we quickly mention Paul Rudd, aka the sexiest yeah, yeah, man, yeah, 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 the yeah. sexiest the, man alive? You know, you, it's a burden. <laughs> trust me. He's kind of a school teacher in it who befriends the kids. Don't want to say too much more about it. I thought he was very good. He is, yeah. He's kind of the he's he's a guy called Gary Gruberson. He's mm, the, the link Gruberson, like, yeah. between the new characters and the old ones. He's the guy who remembers what happened in nineteen eighty four. Um, we should also talk about McKenna, McKenna Grace because she's she's tremendous. She as, really does carry the yeah, movie. She's as the, the granddaughter, uh, she's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's fantastic. Yeah, um, yeah. And she, she she like she she does carry the movie, and that's saying a lot when you consider what's going on around her. Yeah, absolutely. So look, uh, we have a busy show this week, so I'm going to get oh, yeah. straight to it. What's the story, Stars Wise? A movie that got a tear in your eye. We don't say that often. What are you going to say, Stars Wise, for Ghostbusters Afterlife? I'm going to give it a four. Good man, good man. Yeah, and well, I, I, yeah, I'm going to give it a four as well. I, I really low expectations, and I kind of, although I didn't cry, I don't think. I, uh, I can't remember. Who knows? But I Strong certainly also cry, as the big Lebowski uh, said. Absolutely, but I certainly had a smile uh, throughout it, and it was if it if it was a warm bath of nostalgia, I'm fine with that. Like I see what you're saying about fan service, but I enjoyed all that. And you know what? It's a movie about hunting ghosts. It's it's not The Godfather. So if you're going to have a warm <laughs> bath of nostalgia why not have it in the company of ghostbusters so that's a four for ghostbusters afterlife from an emotional but happy mark ryle and it's a four for me as well for ghostbusters afterlife which is in cinemas now thank you mark thanks john now in a busy week of new releases there's one more i definitely want to bring to you and it's irish breaking out is the remarkable story of corkborn singer-songwriter fergus o'farrell the charismatic voice of interference one of the most compelling and influential bands to emerge from the irish music scene in the 1990s he's probably best known for his timeless song gold which featured in the soundtrack to once, yes, that once, the John Carney and uh, Glenn Hansard movie that we all know and indeed love. Now, despite being diagnosed with muscular dystrophy at a young age, through it all, Fergus, I guess, had to keep singing. His unique talent and love for life inspired a generation of songwriters, one of whom was Glenn Hansard, who I mentioned. And in the movie, he very poignantly helps Fergus record what would be his recording for the last time. It's a remarkable watch, and it was filmed over 10 years. Two weeks ago, I told you about Love Yourself Today by Damien Dempsey and I thought we can't get two great Irish music documentaries in the space of two weeks but I was wrong. It's producer, it's director I should say Michael McCormick joins me now. Michael how are you? I'm good John. Thanks very much for having me on. My pleasure. Now listen I delude myself into thinking I'm a bit of a muso and I've even presented music slots on this station over the years and despite my seemingly learned intro there to my shame I had never heard of Fergus O'Farrell. I distantly heard of Interference, but I'd never really come across Fergus O'Farrell. So I was blown away by this. But I'm wondering, was that your reason for making this? Did you want the world to know about Fergus? So you're dead right, John. Basically, um, Fergus O'Farrell and Interference weren't known hugely across uh, the spectrum at the time. They were a band that inspired uh, a generation of singer-songwriters. So it's not unusual not to know their music. But so it was definitely for me, it was the chance to make a, a niche music documentary at first. And then I went down to Skull in West Cork and put a camera on Fergus for a weekend and he didn't shut up. And I left that day realizing that there was a much bigger story about somebody who had a drive and an energy to keep himself going despite a condition that could have stopped him in his tracks. Yeah, absolutely. Now, some of the footage you have is brilliant from, I, I guess some of it's remade. You're back in the factory that he decamped to in the early 90s uh, in the Dublin music scene. Uh, it wasn't Mother Redcaps, it was another place. You'll correct me now. But you also have stuff from him being on, you know, kids shows where B.B. King happened to show up while the band was just starting out. It looked like Midnight at the Olympia and different things like that. I presume you weren't filming back in you know, 1991. 
No. So, so the the reason I knew the band so well, I was one of those people, and they were in that factory. And you're right, actually, it was Mother Redcaps. Okay. But it, it's it was a massive factory. You know, it was the Win Stanley Shoe Factory before That's it was it, developed yeah. into Mother Redcaps. But basically, they when Fergus uh, decamped up to Dublin to find fame and fortune as a, a rock and roll star, he moved into this factory, and the band moved in with him, and people would congregate around that factory. Uh, hearing about this band that were basically rehearsing all the time. The Hollis Flowers would rehearse there as well, the Black Velvet Band, and then they played sporadically mm. because because of his condition, but because they were the most rehearsed band in Dublin, when they played, every musician in Dublin would be there, almost genuflecting at the altar of interference because we everyone realised that this was something very special. And the reason there's so much archive from uh, over the years of interferences they actually probably had more television appearances than gigs because <laughs> they were so well known among their peers that everyone in the business was talking about them mm. and so i was about 14 or 15 at the time when they were playing around for the first time and i was a fan who was going along and like everybody else this was something completely different a band with swagger and a front man with a voice i i often say you know it was unusual at the time you know, it was the era of people mumbling when they were singing. But yeah. Fergus O'Farrell enunciated every word. He had a pride in the lyrics that yeah. uh, Malcolm McClancy was writing with him. You know, so he it was unusual that they they didn't seem to be following any path, just their own. So that's a part of the documentary, the whole look at where they came from and that kind of fascinating time in the Irish music scene when, you know, record companies were like, let's go to Dublin, that's where you 2 came out of and everyone was being offered record contracts. That would have been a fascinating piece in and of itself. But, And I don't want to give too much of a spoiler, but there's this whole other aspect to the movie where Fergus, you know, gets... Uh, can increasingly worn down by his mus muscular dystrophy but there's a huge amount of joy in the movie and was and and things happen that I don't want to get into but let's just say he ends up in Radio City Music Hall some of his music ends up on the one soundtrack did you like at what point did you realize you know there's a there's an arc to this thing that maybe I hadn't realized to be honest with you, John, when, when I sat with, down with him that first time, he told me a lot of the stories that are pivotal in, in the kind of uh, in the construct and in the treatment uh, in the film that allowed me to always, you know, have a have a structure that I worked the observational stuff around. So, yeah, when the as the as the disease was developing, it obviously became more and more part of of what he had to do to get around it. Mm -hmm. So when I first saw him play, he was standing at a mic, then uh, he was in the wheelchair, then he couldn't play guitar, then he couldn't play piano, and he was down to a one third of his lungs um, singing towards the end. So that was kill. He was, somebody asked me the, the other day, you know, was there much, you know, self pity when you were around Fergus? There was none. You didn't notice the, 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 the disease at all because, because he had so much energy trying to get his music done and he just spent so much time working on it and he was a perfectionist. But when he got to the stage where that disease was attacking his greatest gift, his voice, it started to to really impact upon him. Mm. And I suppose before then, it was just, just something in the background. It wasn't the important uh, narrative in, in the film for me. Yeah. But then he started to want me to show how difficult it was getting mm. so you, you you probably start you know when he started talking about it that was the big change for me yeah. because over the years he didn't really want to talk about it that much but yeah. all of a sudden he wanted to let, let it get out there you know this is what I've done to try and get around this and there's one pivotal scene in it which is a reconstruction um, involving Jeremy Irons and I probably shouldn't say too much more about that but it's a pivotal scene for me because it says everything about Fergus. He ends up in a ditch late one night in November at two in the morning and he's thinking, you know, I may be in this ditch and nobody's going to find me. I might let myself go here. And he finds a way to keep going. And for me, that was that is central to what he was about. He always found a way to keep going. Well, I wanted to say that piece with Jeremy Irons, call it magic realism, whatever you want to call it. I just thought it might, I doff my cap to you because it was a brilliant piece of documentary making. It really was. Now, this Thank might you. sound like a really obvious question, but 
towards the end, Glenn Hansart is down there, you're down there, and you're you're recording the video or the film. Glenn Hansart's helping him record what would be his last bits of music. And as I say, it might be very obvious, but on set, like, is that highly emotionally charged? Like, with everyone in the room going, how are we going to get through this? Or, or how is that to film? Well, it's... It, it... It was really tough because, you know, he, as you can see throughout the film, when people, when, when Ferd called people, they came, you know, they wanted to be there to help. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of the period of the last couple of years of his life, he was in his own personal lockdown. So a lot yeah. of people hadn't seen him or had seen the progression. So Glenn Hansard and the boys came down to Skull and it would have been the first time in a while they'd seen him. Um, and it probably would have been a shock. So... Uh, not only that it had progressed, but also that his voice was suffering at this stage. And there was a need to try and help him get through that week. And so I, I suppose the most remarkable thing about it is that there's a scene in the film and it involves a hose. And I call it the ultimate yeah. duet. And basically I got a call about two weeks before I went down and, and Fergus told me that he was going to get a hose from the local hardware store. And he was going to get Glenn to blow into it to fill his lungs so he could he could sing, so he could get the air to sing. And for anyone who knows the disease I was going, are you out of your mind? Mm-hmm. What, what are you thinking of? You know, this is, you know, far too dangerous. But he, he just lost the plot with me and said, you know, I have them coming down here. I need <clears throat> to be able to sing. You know, that's the most important thing for me. So Glenn didn't know anything about it. So the scene you seen, see in the film is about two in the morning. And you're right, everybody, it's emotionally charged because he's finding it hard to sing. Yeah. And then he, Glenn says, what do you want to do? And he says, I might have to get the hose. And yeah. that was the first time Glenn knew what that was. And <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but it's just all coming back to me. No, it is funny. It. Yeah. it is funny because yeah. when, 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 when it was happening in front of our eyes, like all of us, we were laughing our heads off. We yeah. were kind of going, this is the most ludicrous thing. But it's kind of breaking the tension in yeah. this room. And then when it starts to work, and whether it be because the hose was working or that the fact that Glenn was willing to go that extra mile for him and gave him energy, but his voice got stronger. And it it was a remarkable moment. And when we finished filming, Glenn just looked at me and said, thanks be to God you were here for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I'm sorry we don't have more time, but it is a remarkable film breaking out it tells the story of Fergus O'Farrell who uh, to my shame I hadn't really heard of but by God I'm going to track down everything he's ever done uh, and and listen to it on repeat as I say the film breaking out is in cinemas from this Friday the 19th of November you should go and see it Michael McCormick is its director he's been working on it for 10 years so uh, show it some love because it deserves it Michael thank you very much John thanks a million that is it for this week. After a very busy show, my thanks to Anne-Marie Kane who helped out. Thanks to you for listening. Just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. I'm open all week long, John underscore Fardy on Twitter, or you can email us, screentime at Newstalk.com. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, enjoy the week ahead, and I will talk to you all next week. And do stay safe.